Open up your Bibles back to Philippians chapter 2. We're in verses 14 through 18, page 982 in the Pew Bible. We were supposed to be in these verses for only one week. This will be week three. Uh, I mentioned a while back that I preached Philippians chapter 2. Preached Philippians solely to preach Philippians chapter 2. And I thought that there were three main parts of it that I wanted to preach. I wanted to preach 1 through 4 on the great call to unity through humility. Be of one mind, count others more significant than yourself. Then I wanted to preach on 5 through 11 and the great gospel of Jesus Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count that equality as a thing to be grasped, but humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then 12 through 13, the great sanctification verses, work out your salvation, for it is God who works in you. Those are the three great sections of Philippians 2 that I was excited about preaching, but I haven't even considered the greatness of verses 14 through 18. And since these were the verses I was preaching on when I got back from vacation, I've been now swimming in this text for about a month And so I just can't get away from it. I've been seeing the greatness of my complaint through verse 14. Uh, God has more and more opened my eyes to the significance and greatness of the command to do all things without grumbling or disputing. You're probably grumbling right now uh, that I'm still talking about complaining. Well, repent for that if you are. But I've just been so caught up in these verses that we've just kind of been slowly creeping our way through them. We'll finish them today. We'll do a nice big long passage next week. But 17 and 18, again, studying them, I was like, well, we just can't breeze through these verses because these are great verses. We've now studied the command 14, don't complain, and we've seen a number of reasons why. Ultimately, because of the sovereignty of God. But also, we saw last week, because complaint hinders sanctification, the very thing that you were called to in verse 12, and also then because complaint hinders evangelization, the very thing you were created for in verse 15, to shine as lights in the darkness, to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So he's saying now, now be that light. Live in light of the gospel. Live lives worthy of the gospel so that people may see your good deeds And then glorify God. And then speak that gospel, telling people how much Jesus Christ has done for you. So don't complain, because words of complaint hinder words of witness. Words of complaint are words of death when we are called to speak the gospel, the very word of life. But as we saw last week, man, we all of us so struggle to do this. We are complainers. I am the chief of sinners. We are pros when it comes to words of complaint and yet so very poor when it comes to words of life. So I don't know about you, but I at least need more encouragement. Maybe I'm just preaching to myself here, but I need more reasons and exhortations from Scripture to lay aside my words of complaint and then hold fast to his word of life and then hold forth that word of life by shining as a light in both word and deed. I think verses 17 and 18 can help us do that. Remember last week I harped a bit on 1 Corinthians 6, 19. I encourage you to burn these five short words into your brain. You are not your own. Uh, That's a great uh, summary of Christian ethics. You are not your own. So much of our general day-to-day discouragement and frustration is because we forget this very basic truth. It's not about you. Your life is not about you. It's not for you. You have been purchased, but redeemed. Therefore, you are not your own, but his. Which means that you don't get to determine who you are. You don't get to determine what you do. You don't get to determine what you are for. He does. And our complaint comes when we neglect this fact. You have some vision of the good life in your head that you have constructed, right? Life will be good and I will be happy if I have this thing, that thing, this relationship, and as long as this thing does not happen. It's all about expectations. Expectations are everything and expectations are deadly. 
Jeff, you guys know Jeff, my brother-in-law, preached here back in April. Uh, he did our premarital counseling. He and my sister, it was a little strange in a couple of parts, um, but he did our premarital counseling 10 years ago. Our 10-year anniversary is coming up in October, which is crazy. But for some reason, one of the few things, don't tell him that, one of the few things that most stuck with me was his warning about the danger of expectations in marriage. Right? If Melissa has the expectation that the man is supposed to be handy, fixing everything that breaks and doing all sorts of home improvement projects, if her thinking is, my father can build houses, therefore my husband should at least be able to hang something on the wall, well, she's going to be sorely disappointed. I have tried hanging one thing on the wall, and it fell off. Um, I don't have a handy bone in my body. Uh, that's what VJ and Minzy and Jim and uh, father-in-laws and Ricky and people like that are for. The point is, if she had that expectation, when it was then left unfulfilled by her terribly unhandy husband, then she would be tempted toward dissatisfaction and complaint. Maybe many of our complaints result from a wrong understanding and expectation of the Christian life. So I want Paul's words in verses 17 and 18 to humble us and correct us. Let us try and battle our constant complaint this morning by getting a more realistic biblical picture of the nature of the Christian life. I know Great Expectations is a great book, but I want you to have realistic expectations. And then I want to show you how those realistic expectations actually then result in great joy. So just two points this morning, I'm still working on pastoral prayer. I know it adds more time, so I'm supposed to then shorten my sermon. Haven't figured that part out yet, but I'm working on it, so bear with me. So just two points this morning. Here's how you can combat complaint. Do it by better understanding the nature of the Christian life. Point number one, the Christian life is sacrificial service. That's what it is. got to know that. But then, unexpectedly, point number two, sacrificial service is both gladness and joy. And we want to see how those two things go together. So let's, let's read the text. I'm still going to read the whole thing. I'll read 14 through 18, Philippians chapter 2, uh, but we're going to focus on 17 and 18. I'll read it for you if you want to follow along in your copy of the scriptures. But this is what the sovereign and good God of the universe wants to say to you today. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. If you would, bow with me and let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer before we begin. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is living and active. Father, we believe that these are the words of eternal life. We believe that your word does not return to you void. We believe that you speak and you sanctify and you save through your word. Father, sanctify us in your truth. Your word is truth. So work on us through this word this morning, we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so we're focusing on verses 17 and 18. We need to wrap up at the end of verse 16 first before we can get there because we ran out of time last week. Our first point is that the Christian life is a life of sacrificial service. That's 17, but I want to lead up to that by looking at how Paul describes his experience of the Christian life at the end of verse 16. So look there. He wants them not complaining so that they would not hinder their own sanctification and evangelization. By not complaining, they will more effectively shine as lights in a dark world. By not complaining, they will be able to instead speak words of life by holding fast to the word of life. But notice the why. Notice the so that in the middle of verse 16. Here's a reason why he wants them to do this. We think 
we would think that the so that would be something like so that God would be glorified or so that sinners would be saved or so that they would grow in godliness. But he doesn't say any of that. He says, do all this so that I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. That sounds a little bit strange. Is this the same Paul of Galatians 6.14? But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And 1 Corinthians 1.31, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. We've been singing a lot. Uh, my worth is not in what I own. Are we singing that at the end? No, okay, sorry. I thought I saw that. Sorry. I love it. It's my favorite song right now. It gets me every time. And we sing in the fourth verse, but I will boast in knowing Christ at the cross. But in our verse, Paul wants them to do all that so that he may be proud. And in the Greek, it literally says, so that he may boast. One of the newer translations, the Christian Standard Bible, puts 16 like this. Then I can boast in the day of Christ that I didn't run or labor for nothing. What do we do with that? Has Paul completely forgotten all of this gospel humility he's been talking about? Is he all of a sudden boasting in self and not in Christ? Well, again, of course not. I give him a little bit of credit. Uh, what he's just explained up in verses 12 and 13 explains what he's doing here. Remember verse 12? You work out your own salvation in fear and trembling. Christian, you've got work to do. You've got a role to play. You've got a responsibility in light of all of that wonderful gospel goodness in verses 5 through 11. Work that out. Not work for your salvation. Work out your salvation. Live out uh, the, the results, the consequences, the fruit of it. And as we've seen, when Paul says salvation there, he means sanctification. Right? The Christian life. Our, our pursuit and growth in holiness. That involves work and effort. The Christian life is very active. And we saw that that work was obedience. Follow the Savior that you claim to love. I got really frustrated with Emma last night. And so I jumped to John 14. I was like, listen, love equals obedience, <laughs> according to Jesus. So if you love me, you will do what I say. Uh, probably wasn't my finest parenting moment. Uh, there's, there's truth to that, but I was so frustrated. I don't think I used it uh, very well. Um, but Jesus says, obey him, because to love him is to obey him. So he's saying, you work out your salvation. But that's only the first half of the equation. Then there's verse 13. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Right, so that's how this works. It's actually God that works in us and through us. Apart from me, you can do nothing. All of our working is only possible as an outworking of his inworking. Everything good that we do, everything good that you have ever done is a fruit of God's good grace. That's why one of my favorite passages, Paul lays this out in 1 Corinthians 15, 10. He says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with, that is with me. Is that a wonderful grace sandwich there? Paul says, grace of God. Then he talks about the work of Paul and then says, even that was the grace of God that is with him and in him. That's how, in our verse, he can say that he will be proud and that he will boast. Because anything good that results from Paul's ministry, anything good that results in the life of the Philippians, anything good that results in my ministry or that results in the life of Woodside is only a result of the grace of God. And so, as we are increasingly learning to boast in the Lord, we can also then boast in the wonderful fruits of his grace. And that's what Paul is doing here. He's boasting in the Lord and then the Lord's work through him. He's delighting to see the people that he loves grow in godliness and grow in effectiveness in the gospel. Remember, this is the guy that could say up in 121 that for him to live is Christ and to die is gain. His life is Christ. 
The Christian life is Christ. And we've got to keep that in mind if we're going to be able to understand this point. Because this first point is that the Christian life is sacrificial service. So we're getting to in 17, but we're still building towards it with 16. Notice the two metaphors he uses in the end of 16 to describe his life and ministry. These are two of Paul's favorite metaphors. Run and labor. The Christian life as race and work. I don't like either of those words. I am naturally predisposed to be against both running and laboring. Why? Because both of them are hard, and we hate hard. We read earlier 1 Corinthians 9, where Paul most clearly unpacks the race metaphor. If you want to turn back there, page 957, 1 Corinthians 9, uh, starting in verse 24. 957. 1 Corinthians 9, 24. Listen to what he says here. Pay attention. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? Stop there. Biblical. No participation trophies. Right? That's not a thing. That's against God's word. Right? Only one receives the prize. It's a joke. I'm joking. Keep going. Back to the text. So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we, an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So again, Paul's describing ministry, and he's describing the Christian life, and notice that he chooses all kinds of unpleasant metaphors and hard words. It's a race. It's not a sprint either. It's a distant race, distance race. It's a marathon. He says, so run it. The word exercise in verse 25 is agon in the Greek from which we get our word agony. That means conflict or struggle. Then there's self-control. We don't love that. Then there's more fighting terminology. Boxing in verse 26. It's the only time in the whole New Testament this word is used, and it literally means a fight. It means a fist fight. And fist fights are, are bloody, brutal affairs. Then he uses the word beating, which means to strike or to flay or to scourge. The point of all this is that I want you to see how Scripture describes the Christian life, because there is so much out there masquerading as Christian that says something completely different. Right? The Christian life is not your best life now. If this is your best life now, you're going to hell. Right? Not good. Surely I don't need to pick on my friend, Joel Osteen. You're not listening to him. We figured that out, right? He's promising the opposite of Scripture. What these guys are doing is they're setting up these unrealistic and unbiblical expectations of the Christian life that God wants to bless you and make you healthy, wealthy, and happy in this life. Sounds good. Problem is it's not true. Let's try a new guy. Let's pick on a new guy. Uh, Bill Johnson. I don't know if you've heard of this guy. He's up and coming, so be aware. The Bethel Church movement. Uh, be warned about this guy. He preaches something they call Jesus is perfect theology. Now, here's why these things are so deceiving, because that's correct. Right? Jesus is perfect, obviously. But they didn't take that and twist that to mean all kinds of crazy things, like they teach that it is always God's will to heal you in this life. That's such a dangerous lie, right? Because when you're not experiencing healing, it's your problem, and it's your lack of faith. You're doing something wrong. That's deadly. And that teaching is worse than the grave sucking that they do, where they lay on people's graves to soak up their anointing, or the supposed angel feathers that they have falling from their rafters. Guys, there's a ton of crazy stuff out there that parades as Christian. And it's so easy to recognize what makes it so sad is that so many are sucked in by it. These heresies all promise prosperity. They all promise blessing in the sense of immediate temporal material abundance and ease and comfort. And what I want you to see is how opposed that is to what Paul is promising here. Paul's understanding and experience of the Christian life was so different. It's a race. It's a race. 
It's exercise. It's self-control. It's fight. It's discipline. And ultimately, finally, it's sacrifice. Look at verse 17. He says, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. What in the world does that mean? There's two, notice there's two things there. We have a drink offering and we have a sacrificial offering. Notice first that Paul is not the sacrifice. Paul is the drink offering poured out on their sacrificial offering. So first, what is a drink offering? There's a couple things Paul could be talking about. There were pagan drink offerings that the Philippians would have been familiar with in the pagan temples in, in Philippi. But most likely, Paul is referring back to the Old Testament and the Hebrew drink offerings. So, for example, in Numbers 15:5, God is there instructing the people about the why and the how of the sacrifices. And God says this, and you shall offer with the burnt offering, or with the sacrifice, a quarter of a hen of wine for the drink offering. A hen is a measurement. A hen is about a gallon, so a quarter of a hen is about a quart of wine, which is more than a whole bottle in today's uh, measurements. But the point is to note that the wine is not the sacrifice. The animal, the lamb, is the sacrifice. It's the focus, and the wine accompanies it. There was no just soul drink offering. The drink offering always was part of another sacrifice, enhancing it. Why? And why wine, by the way? Oh, I'm going to get in trouble here. Whatever. Well, what I understand, we've got to get over our American and Baptist fear of wine. It's only an American and Baptist thing, it seems. Many of us grew up with the automatic association, wine equals bad, wine equals evil, so stay away. And if that's the case, what Paul's saying here doesn't really make any sense. The great tragedy and irony of that is that it's the complete opposite of what Scripture teaches. Right? And whenever you're teaching in contradiction to Scripture, it's not a good thing to do. Because in Scripture, wine is good. It's just simple. It's a symbol of blessing. And it's associated always with joy. Judges 9.13 says that wine cheers God and men. You know what the Hebrew word for cheers there is? What's the Hebrew word? Joy. Wine rejoices. Wine gladdens. That's why drink offering. Wine, keep in mind, symbol of gladness. So taking, symbol of gladness. They didn't have a bottle. I'm holding a bottle. Uh, I don't know why I'm doing that. Um, so taking out uh, the thing that is a symbol of gladness and then pouring that out before the Lord was supposed to be a picture and a symbol of great joy. Right? The sacrifices were an expression of thanksgiving for the God who forgives and saves. And then by adding to that the wine that is also a great gift from God, that only further enhances and expresses the gratitude and the joy. Right? Psalm 104, 15, talking about the greatness and goodness of God. Well, that includes the fact that he gives wine to gladden the heart of man. Same Hebrew word for joy. He says, Scripture says, wine rejoices the heart, and it's a gift of God. Ecclesiastes 9, 7, go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. We're reading through John right now with the girls, and we got to John chapter 2. We had to explain to them why the first miracle Jesus performs is the making of water to wine. That's really hard to explain if wine is evil. Like, what's this guy doing here? This doesn't make much sense. But we want to rightly teach our girls in accordance with Scripture. It's a gift. It's good. It represents blessing and joy. That's why Jesus makes a great abundance of it. And he makes the really, really good stuff. The master of the ceremony is like, wait a second. This stuff's so good. Where did this come from? What are you doing? Now again, we're clear. You can't have it till you're 21. We, the warnings are there. Uh, Drunkenness is sinful. It's wrong. It's bad. Be very careful and wise. Um, but we also want to be careful not to call something evil that God calls good. And so Paul takes this symbol, this Old Testament symbol of wine, to represent his gladness and rejoicing. And notice that he, takes that, he tags that on at the end. He explains what he means. He will do all this with gladness and with rejoicing. 
So keep that in mind. We're going to come back to that. But if he's the drink offering, right, the addition, the symbol of gladness, well, that means that they are the sacrifice. And that means that you are the sacrifice, which means that the Christian life is a life of sacrificial service. Paul is being poured out upon the sacrificial offering of their faith. Faith is a sacrificial offering. And it sounds really nice. But let's make sure we understand what that means. Faith is a sacrifice. Not sacrifice like, you know, I'll only get one Starbucks drink a day instead of two kind of sacrifice. But sacrifice like the Old Testament sacrificial lamb. A sacrifice dies. Right? Sacrifice is death. Paul says that faith is sacrifice and that sacrifice is death. And all he is doing is simply echoing the words of Jesus himself. Want to be a Christian? Want to believe in Jesus? Want to follow him? Okay, then listen to what Jesus says. Here's what following him looks like. There's no sugarcoating or soft selling here. There's no altar call. There's no just repeat these words after me and raise that hand. Here's what Jesus says. Mark 8, 34. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Forever who would, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. So following Jesus equals denying self and taking up a cross. And just in case that's not clear enough, cross equals death. Which he clarifies in the next verse. If you want to save your life, you'll have to lose it. You'll have to deny yourself. You'll have to sacrifice yourself. That's the nature of the Christian life. It is self-denial and it is self-sacrifice. And that's what it has to be. Because of the nature of the non-Christian life, which is self-affirmation and self-exaltation. The problem is that as we affirm ourselves, we deny God. As sinners, we have rejected him and accepted self. We have attempted to dethrone him and to enthrone self, which is a problem because he's the king. And we're not. He is God. And we are not. So all of us, in our sin, in our attempt to go our own way or be our own God, we then reject the God who made us. We reject the God who is the giver and source of life and goodness. And to reject him is a great offense to both his godness and his goodness. And to reject him is also to reject both life and goodness. That's why the wages of sin is death. That's why in New York City... That's why the world, that's why our hearts are in such a bad state. Sin separates from the God who is goodness and life. In choosing and affirming self, we have chosen and affirmed our separation from the Lord. That's why salvation, that's why coming back to him involves repenting. Right? It's a change of mind. First, repent means a change of mind. God does that. It's a grace. It's a work on his heart. But then that change of mind leads to a change in direction. It's a, we're going this way, and we get put now going this way. As our mind changes, our life and our direction changes. That's why salvation has to involve denying the self. Because I don't know about you, but my self is shot through with sin. That's why it involves death. Because that old sinful man must die to be reborn in newness of life. We've got to understand the nature of the Christian life rightly. It is sacrifice. And that's what Romans 12.1 says as well. Paul, again, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. You see that? Even worship is sacrifice. And we, we correct it, but we still do it. Right? We think of worship almost exclusively of singing nice, positive, encouraging praise songs. But singing is only one small little part of our worship. It's an important part, but it's not the only part. And positive and encouraging shouldn't have to mean peppy and contentless. 
That's why I'm so thankful Andy just introduced that new hymn. That's, that's William Cooper, C-O-W-P-E-R. I'm again on a John Newton kick, and so that means I'm on a Cooper kick, because John Newton and William Cooper were friends. They wrote some of the greatest hymns in history together. And I love Cooper, because his hymns are always such a realistic look of the Christian life, because he was plagued for most of his life with serious depression. But he always fought to cling to the sovereignty and the goodness of God. So go back and meditate on that hymn we just sang. Yes, life is full of clouds that you much dread, but they are full of mercy, and they will break with blessing. Yes, there's a frowning providence, but behind it is a smiling face. Yes, the bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. That's, that's worship music right there. That's, that's a realistic wrestle and struggle with the difficulties of life, all while resting and rejoicing in the sovereignty and goodness of God. But the point of Romans 12 is that all of life is worship, and that worship is sacrifice. The Christian life is a life of sacrificial service. And Paul gives us his own self as an example. He's about to tell us in chapter 3, 17, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Listen, join in imitating Paul here. He is willing to be poured out. He is willing to die if that serves the good of those whom he loves. And he will die in just a couple of years after writing this very letter. Brothers and sisters, is this how you see the Christian life? Is this how you see your calling as a living sacrifice, as a life of sacrificial service? Have you denied yourself and taken up your cross and followed Jesus? Just keep in mind, the one that we follow died. And that was the whole purpose of his coming, to die for sinners like you and me, to serve us by giving his life as a ransom to redeem us. We owed death. He came and paid that death for us. That's the one, when we say we believe in Jesus, that we're claiming to follow. Are you following him on the road of sacrificial service? I so, as your pastor, I so want to protect you from all the lies out there. I want you to turn off the so-called Christian TV channels. I want you to stop listening to the so-called Christian preachers who are telling you that God wants to bless you and make your life abundant easy and comfortable. It's a lie. And it is a deadly, ruinous lie. And when you hear it and you believe it, and then things fall apart, well, faith falls apart because you've been given a false, unrealistic expectation. Instead, listen to Jesus. Listen to Paul. The Christian life is hard. The Christian life is a cross. It is a denying of self. It is death to self. It is sacrifice. Listen to a couple of other people, just other examples, testimonies, witnesses. I've mentioned before you, uh, to you before uh, Rosaria Butterfield. Uh, if you haven't looked her up, just do yourself a favor. Go read Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. Uh, Butterfield was a lesbian English professor at Syracuse University, just upstate. Um, and before God just supernaturally got a hold of her and saved her. But here's how she describes that conversion, that salvation. She says, the light of the gospel, the light that the gospel gave me was ruinous. It ruined me for the life that I loved. The Lord's light illumined my sin through the law and illumined my hope through Jesus and the gospel. The gospel destroyed me before the Lord built me back up. I love that. Finished this week a book uh, by another lady, uh, Joni Erickson, Johnny, Johnny Erickson Tata, another amazing woman who was paralyzed from the neck down in a diving accident at age 17. Uh, God then saved her as well. She's gone on to have an amazing ministry in the last 40 years, and she describes God as her glorious intruder. Right? Her plan was definitely not to spend her life in a wheelchair. God's plan was different. And she can actually look back and say that his plan was better. Listen to how, I'm in the Institutes right now. Listen to how Calvin puts it in the Institutes. I just love that he doesn't pull punches. 
Calvin writes, Life, considered in itself, is troubled, turbulent, attended by many miseries, and never entirely happy, and that whatever things we consider good in this life are uncertain, passing, vain, and spoiled because they're mixed with many evils. And from this, we likewise conclude that we should expect and hope for nothing other than trouble in this life. And just read the New Testament and the experience of the life of Jesus and of the apostles and of those who came after them. Calvin says, expect nothing other than trouble. Expectations matter. And if you expect it, if you understand the nature of the Christian life, when the suffering or the difficulty or the persecution or the trials or the depression or whatever it is, when it comes, you won't be shocked and caught off guard. Why are we always so shocked and appalled when these things come? Why do we have such a hard time believing that we are called to self-denial and sacrifice? It's right here. We just don't like it because we're sinners and because we love self and self loves comfort and ease and entertainment and because we falsely believe that it's those things it's in those things that we will find joy and gladness and fulfillment and life and peace but it's not let's get to our last point all this talk about sacrifice in death, it sounds so negative, discouraging, Caleb. But but look at what Paul does. I, I really like that joke, so I'm going to keep using it. I apologize. Look at what Paul does. Look at verse 18. This is fantastic. This contrast. He's the one who has said that the Christian life is sacrificial service. He's the one talking about crosses and sacrifice and dying. But he also wonderfully says that it's actually this very sacrificial service that is gladness and joy. 18. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. What? Why? The last two verses have just been running and laboring and drink offering, being poured out and, and sacrificial offering. Now all of a sudden, it's you be glad and rejoice with me. And don't miss that with me. Paul's the one writing all of these hard things, and Paul is the one who is living all of these hard things. Don't forget that he's writing this whole letter from prison, chained 24-7 to a Roman soldier. He's awaiting trial, not sure if he's going to live or die. He's willing to be poured out, and yet at the end of 17, he can say he is glad and rejoicing. How? Well, let's step back for a second and consider the big picture of chapter 2. Look over kind of the entirety of chapter 2. We're going to wrap it up next week. It's, it's good writing. Look at verses 3 and 4. Remember, here we saw Paul's call um, to the Philippians towards this sacrificial service. He tells them to do nothing from selfish ambition and conceit. Man, we almost always do everything from selfish ambition and conceit. And then he tells them to count others more significant than themselves. Man, we almost always count ourselves more significant than others. And he tells them to look not only to their own interests, but the interests of others. And man, we almost always look only to our own interests. This is the nature, this is what sinners do. So how in the world could such countercultural, self-denying attitudes and ways of life be possible? Only verses 5 through 11. Only the gospel. Only Christ. So good what Paul does here. The one, he points them to the one who perfectly did nothing from selfish ambition and conceit. The one who perfectly counted others more significant than himself. The one who perfectly looked not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. To your interests. And he did so though he was in the form of God. Though he was God, he did not count that a thing to be grasped. Instead, he humbled himself by taking on the form of a servant. By becoming one of us, he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. It's the gospel. Do you see what Paul is doing? He commands them. Commands are good. We don't need to be afraid of Scripture's commands. The law is holy and righteous and good, but he doesn't just command them. 
right? He then comforts them and he encourages them and he points them to Christ, right? The one who has perfectly fulfilled the law's command in their place. The one who has perfectly paid the penalty they owed for the breaking of those laws uh, command. The one who was raised then and raised them to newness of life, making them now able to keep the laws command. But what I most want you to see is that he says, be like this in verses three through four, because God is like this. Verses five through 11. And since God is your maker, since he created you in his image to be like him, and since he is so gloriously other focused and self-sacrificially serving, that means then that you were created to be other focused and self-sacrificially serving. It's wired into who you are. It is part of your very design and things always work better when they work according to their design. My laptop is wonderful for writing sermons. It is terrible for Frisbee, right? Because that's not what it's designed for. Design matters. And you were designed not primarily for you. Got to get that right. You are not your own. You were not primarily designed for you. That's why Augustine's description of sin is so brilliant and enlightening. Sin, he said in the Latin, is incurvitas in se. Sin is when we are curved in on ourselves. Sin is being curved in on oneself. It is self-love. It is self-focus when you were created for God-love and God-focus and other love and other focus. Again, maybe I'm just my own experience, and maybe you guys are better people than me. You are. Listen, I'm a pastor in part selfishly because I'm not a good enough Christian to not be. I need my time. I get to spend all of my time studying God's word and praying with the people of God and praying for the people of God. Man, I desperately need that. Um, I get to do all of my things revolving around the word of God, and you pay me to do it. What a gift. What a privilege it is. Here, study God's word for your job. Okay, Uh, praise God. Man, thank you for that. So I need this. But so much of my doubt and discouragement and just like mild, low-grade frustration and impatience and, and dissatisfaction with life always results when I turn back in on myself and start to focus on myself and obsess with myself and start to believe the lie that my life is supposed to be about my self glorification and my self-exaltation. When I demand that my life be about me and go the way that I want it to go and go the way that best serves me and my comfort and ease and entertainment and pleasure. And yet, the crazy thing, I still haven't learned this yet, yet, when I do that, when I pursue that which I think is supposed to bring me those things, the comfort and ease and entertainment and pleasure, when I pursue self and my own good, Amazingly, I actually find myself even more miserable and more down and discouraged. Pursuing the things that self and the world tell me to pursue don't seem to do the things, don't seem to do the things that the self and the world tell me it will do. Why is that? It's because of design. It's because I was created in the image of God. Because I was created like him and for him, to be with him. He's the fuel that I'm supposed to run on. You were created to be turned outward. To be first vertically oriented toward him and all that you are and do. And then horizontally toward turned outwards and uh, towards others in all that you are and do. And the amazing thing is... It's so opposite of what we're told and what we expect. But the amazing thing is, is that when by the grace of God we do that, we actually find gladness and joy in this service and focus of others. Because it's what we were made for. Because it's what our God is like. That's why verses 5 through 11 
are so important. That's why it's the center around which everything else in the letter revolves. That's why the gospel is the center around which everything else revolves. Jesus Christ is the most clear and perfect revelation to us of what our God is like. And Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And he did it. And he died, Hebrews tells us, for the joy that was set before him. Paul can be imprisoned and poured out and face death with gladness and joy because he knows he's imaging his Savior. He knows he's living according to his design. He knows that there is a good God who desires the salvation of his people. He knows that there is an eternally long life to come after this painfully short life is over. And so he will gladly do anything that serves more and more people so that they can hear about and believe in the only one who can save them from their sins. Guys, this life is hard. And that's okay. We can take the race and the struggle and the sacrifice because we also then know that this life is not all that there is. Right? We know that this light and momentary suffering Listen, your suffering right now, right now may not feel light and momentary. Paul says that it is. Again, in no way to minimize the significance of what you're experiencing, but in comparison to the greatness of what is coming, he says this, no matter how big, no matter how bad, no matter how long, it's nothing. Because it's preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. And if we believe that, and if we follow our Savior's Footsteps, then we can spend and be spent for the good of others. We can actually be sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. We can count it all joy when we face trials of various kinds. All because of verses 5 through 11. All because of Christ. All because of the victory that he has won. All because of the future he's guaranteed. All this is just the previews. Isn't this isn't the main thing. Your problem is that you believe that this is the main thing. Right? I sin and I complain when I believe that this is the main thing. This is the, this is the previews. Right? All this does is get us to the main show. And we want as many to get to the main show with us as possible. And so we then gladly and willingly speak and we sacrifice and we serve and we give up and we suffer. Hey, maybe one day, I don't know, probably not, but maybe one day even here we'll be imprisoned or, or have to die. And who knows? But even then, Paul's doing those things. And so we can say with him that we are glad and rejoice. And it's because, not our circumstances, but our God. It's because he is so good and faithful. Because the forgiveness of our horrible sins was so costly to him. We have no comprehension of what Jesus experienced spiritually on that cross. We have no comprehension of what it meant for the weight of all the sins of all the people that Jesus was dying for to be placed upon him and in that one moment for him to pay the penalty for all of those that it would have taken us an eternity in hell to never fully pay off. He paid off all of it there on the cross. And so we give him thanks. And so we give him our lives because he has already given us his. And we do it joyfully, glad for his grace. Remember, that's what the Greek word joy means. Joy and grace are basically the same word. It is the conviction and the contentment that all is well. It is a settled gladness because of the grace of God. Joy means glad for grace. Glad because of grace. And so now we live for him with realistic expectations. Life may not always be easy. It will often be hard. But with him, it will always be good. You are not your own. You are made by him. You are made for him. Maybe, just maybe, you're miserable because you're doing it all wrong. Maybe you're miserable because you've forgotten who you are and what you are for. This is a call for us to remember, to rehearse the goodness of God toward us in Christ, to request, to speak to him in prayer. Ask him to turn you outward. 
Do what I do every day and confess your sinful selfishness and ask him to give you the heart for other people that you don't have, but that you so desperately want to have. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Every single day we should be praying that because every single day we are sinful and he is merciful. And then go and work it out. Go and live it out. Live out your salvation with fear and trembling because it is him, himself, God, who works in you. Uh, to will and to work for his good pleasure. And then Paul says, do it with gladness and do it with joy because the outcome is guaranteed. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we are glad and we are thankful for your grace. Father, we are also humbled by your grace. We are also convicted by your grace. And by your word and our, how short we fall of even the example of Paul. How much shorter then do we fall of the example of our perfect Savior, Jesus Christ. We are then so thankful that our standing with you and our relationship with you is not dependent upon how well we do, but upon how perfectly Christ has already done for us. So show us Christ. Delight us. Encourage us in his grace, Father. And then out of that grace. I pray that we would gladly live our lives sacrificially serving you by serving others, living lives of gladness and joy independent of our circumstances, but because you have been so good to us in Jesus Christ. Father, I cannot stir up my heart to delight in Jesus like I want to. I cannot convince and guilt and manipulate to get us excited or whatever I want to try to do to get us to love Jesus as much as we should love Jesus. Father, we are helpless. Father, you are powerful and able and good. Now work in us. Give us a great love for your son, Jesus Christ. And we ask and we pray this in his name. Amen.